I will proceed to uh, introduce each of the speakers. Our first speaker will be the ambassador of Iraq to the United States. This will be the third time in the last 12 months uh, that he has, actually the fourth time that he has uh, spoken for a National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations event. Uh, he did so in the case of the Model Arab League. He did so in the case of a Capitol Hill briefing at the Ronald Reagan building uh, earlier. And he's uh, been a stalwart in trying to preside over seminars where we ask the questions about Iraq's return to sovereignty. The three concepts that are used with regard to Iraq's situation since 2003. If I could have your attention, please. The three concepts are United Nations concepts in the Charter of the United Nations in terms of a country's national sovereignty, its political independence, and its territorial integrity. All of these have been under an onslaught of pressure or divergencies of viewpoints and analyses and opinions. Uh, but the ambassador himself is the number one representative of Iraq in the United States dealing uh, with the bilateral relationship and these pressing issues that have happened in his country since March 19, 2003. The ambassador has been ambassador of Iraq to the United States since 2006. He left Iraq in 1973 and was a businessman for years in Europe as well as in Asia. He returned to Iraq after the ouster of Saddam Hussein, became a member of the Iraq Governing Council and the chairman of its media committee. And then he also had perhaps the single most important and dangerous and challenging job of all Iraqi leaders, namely as Minister of Interior in 2004 in Iraq. Uh, prior to becoming Iraq's ambassador uh, to the United Nations. Uh, the ambassador, in addition to having his background in business, uh, also in electrical engineering, and he uses computer science uh, for architectural renditions and Arabic calligraphy. And he's also published in, in classical Arabic poetry. Ambassador Sumedai. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, and thank you for this magnificent opportunity to uh, air the subject of Iraq uh, again. The amount of um, interest we have in this, uh, in this hall, uh, in this panel, reflects the uh, attention of the present administration to the subject. We are in trouble. We, we hope that um, Iraq will not be forgotten. There are a lot of debates about Iraq. There were a lot of debates about Iraq. And the current mood about it is that it, it is yesterday's problem. It's not yesterday's problem. In my brief remarks, I want to try and put Iraq in a very broad historical context. Iraq was an up-and-coming country in the first part of the 20th century. 
It took the wrong turn, got itself into a dictatorship, which became later an absolute dictatorship, and got into trouble. That led to a process of degeneration within the country, its institutions, its capabilities, its capacities, its progress, its human rights, its social structures. This degeneration was accelerated during the years of the sanctions. The sanctions finished off what dictatorship started. By the time the United States intervened, Iraq was only a shadow of its former self. So as a country which was neglected for decades, suffered wars, hardship, and the oppression of a ruthless dictatorship, as well as the debilitating sanctions, tried to recover after the American military intervention. It, was, it, it found it extremely difficult. In the best circumstances, with the best management, it was a difficult job. As it happened, the intervention itself was not based on a thorough and complete understanding of the situation the country was in. Ideas that were brought from this country were, were imported into Iraq with the intention of transplanting them into an environment which was totally, totally incapable of supporting them. So we saw the initial failures and the initial frustrations. But we recovered. We started to recover after our American friends recognized that they were going in the wrong direction. My point which I want, my larger point which I want to make now is this. Iraq will recover. Iraq is capable of recovering, but only if managed well. If we Iraqis don't manage this process well, it will not recover soon. It will eventually recover no matter what. But the time and cost and pain and suffering would be much greater. But it's not sufficient that we Iraqis manage things well. It's absolutely imperative that our American friends whose initiative, whose intervention brought us to where we are now, share with us and participate fully and actively and continue to intervene in order to make sure that the outcome is positive. Now, with an administration which has its hands full with multitudes of problems, 
both domestic and international, must also deal with this, with this issue. I will not call it a problem. I think it is now quickly transforming itself into an opportunity. It is not so much the quantity of attention that will matter for us. It's the quality of attention. We are located geographically in an area where there are many influences on what we do or in Iraq. We have elections coming up in January, and the Iraqi people are not the only players in those elections. We have regional powers who will have, who have a stake in the outcome. We don't want the Americans to abandon Iraq at a time when it could be, it, call, it could fall prey to negative influences. As others intervene, we want a benign intervention of our friends. Next week, we will have in this capital a large conference. I can announce here that the Prime Minister of Iraq will be arriving to Washington on Sunday at the head of a very large delegation, probably no less than 100, uh, not 100, uh, more than 100 delegates, but no less than a dozen uh, key ministers to attend a conference on investment in Iraq, to announce that Iraq is now open for business. Two days ago, the Iraqi parliament passed key amendments uh, of our new investment law. We're trying to position ourselves in a way to make sure that the country is friendly to investment, having more or less broke the back the, uh, of the security challenge, we are now trying to get the economy started and get it to, 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 uh, to get the economy to take off. Now we know that some, some of our neighbors, I will not name any, would like us to stay just where we are now. That suits them fine. It doesn't suit us, however. And that also is not in the interest of the United States. It's absolutely in the interest of Iraq and the United States for Iraq to really move forward in a dramatic way. It's capable of doing so. It has the requirements for doing so. And really become an asset rather than a liability for the United States. We have two important agreements that were signed about a year ago. One, one is the status of forces agreement, and that's being implemented, and we are on schedule, and we, we believe that this will 
this will be concluded properly. Both sides are committed to it. And it has come at a time when security has improved and the future of our security forces appears to be assured. The other one, which is coming into focus, is the strategic framework agreement, which sets the stage for the long-term cooperation between Iraq and the United States, building up long-term partnership. We're talking about tens of thousands of Iraqi students hopefully coming to this country. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqi business coming here and American businessmen going the other way. We have a country to build. We have the resources to build it. We have the will to build it. We need partners. And it's at this time that we want to see the Americans fully engaged rather than leaving the field for others. We believe in the values that are cherished in this country. And we believe we can be natural partners. If Iraq moves this way, it will be tremendous for the future of Iraqi children and their children. If Iraq is neglected and mismanaged and descends into chaos again, God forbid, it will be a catastrophe for Iraq and for everybody else. We believe the first, the former possibility or outcome is the more likely, and eventually it will come in any case, but it will not come without attention, without effort, and without commitment. That's why I am here now repeating our, our uh, pleading for continued commitment in a positive sense, economy, political support, diplomatic support. And my prime minister next week will put the very same case at a higher level. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador, and congratulations on the degree to which you've reached out to all kinds of organizations in the United States, public and private sector, non-governmental seminars and media. We'll now turn to Dr. Rochelle Davis. She's a professor of uh, culture and Arab society at Georgetown University's Edmund Walsh Graduate School of Foreign Services, Center for Contemporary Arab Studies, uh, where she has been since 2005. Uh, an anthropologist by training, she's done extraordinary empirical work in the field, and she represents a new generation of young American academics who have spent the better part of a decade on the ground in Arab and Islamic society before returning to the United States uh, to share what they've learned firsthand uh, with the coming emerging generation of future Arabists who will manage the Arab-U.S. Uh, relationship. She teaches the first year uh, uh, 
course uh, to all of the entry-level students in the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. It's the only such center uh, on the western side of the Atlantic in all of North America. And of the 35 uh, students who are amongst the best and brightest that are admitted each year, uh, they come from 350 applicants. So for each one under her, nine were turned down. And she's the one that's entrusted to lay for them the foundation of society and culture and moral beliefs and institutions and practices, all of which uh, um, amount to a lot of a people's heritage and culture uh, for a better understanding of it. She's also been pioneering in meeting with American soldiers in their views of Iraqi society, values, beliefs, institutions, practices, and culture. And more recently still, Iraqi views of Americans in terms of American values, society, culture, beliefs, institutions, and practices. Dr. Davis. Good afternoon, and it's a pleasure to be here uh, today. Um, yes. I echo uh, Dr. Anthony's comments about how wonderful our students are, so it's a, it's a real pleasure to be at Georgetown and to have all of our students. As many of you probably know some of them, or some of them work for you. Um, I'm an anthropologist, and so I don't do a lot with policy, and instead I tend to look at the ways that people implement, understand, and respond to policies. And so sometimes I, when I talk to an audience that's not of that doesn't think in the same ways that I do. I kind of want to preface that, that I'm going to really be talking more about people and responses um, of people to, uh, to, to the kind of larger world out there. I've been working on a, a, a research project for the past few years that has involved uh, studying the US military in Iraq, as Dr. Anthony mentioned, but particularly in the realm of culture, because that's our sort of realm as anthropologists. But I've also been really interested in how uh, the cultural question that have come up of relation, related to the issues of state building, cultural training, and knowledge. And I know this is a, a very large topic um, that involves different units in the military, um, all of their different training programs, somewhere around a million US servicemen and women having served in Iraq, and of course, 27 million Iraqis. Um, and I recognize both the difficulties of conducting research and making conclusions in this context. That's not going to stop me, because I've got 15 minutes here today. So. I will, I will share with you what I have learned over, these, over the last four years of, of working on this project. I have three different uh, scholarly papers on the subject and, the rough, um, and a rough book manuscript, and I'm going to try and distill them all now um, and incorporate some of the conclusions of my research. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with a number of students uh, as research assistants who've participated in this work as well, particularly uh, Elizabeth Grassmeter, Dalia Zain, Dina Takruri, and Omar Shakir. Now I'm going to talk about two different topics. The first is the cultural training material that has been produced um, and been disseminated uh, in the US military. And the second is the issues of nationalism and state building. And my, um, let me start with the, with the cultural training material. Uh, since the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the US military institutions have dedicated specific resources to, to the subject of culture. It's become a, a much more um, uh, popular topic than it has in, in, in the past in other situations and in other uh, wars. 
Um, there are, are courses offered, handbooks, CDs, PowerPoint presentations about Iraq, Arabs, and Islam. And there are programs such as the Human Terrain uh, Systems, which sends out human terrain teams along with um, the, the military units. That, and these human terrain teams uh, employ social scientists to help military commanders understand local populations. What I've been interested in looking at is the kinds of material that they produce. And, um, and how this elaborates a specific Iraqi and Arab and, and Muslim culture that, pro that provides conceptual knowledge to the U.S. That, that, that is then deemed critical to defining who Iraqis are and how U.S. troops should interact with them. And what the military has chosen to use as the frameworks for understanding culture are the national character studies that typify the culture research and cultural anthropology of the 1940s and 50s. We anthropologists don't use them anymore because we don't think that they are either accurate or useful or even correct. Um, but the adoption of this conception of culture as a national character points to two important assumptions. One is that servicemen and women can learn culture as a list of traits, um, character traits and descriptions. And two, that Iraqis actually behave and act in these ways. The first is a pedagogical issue, that these kinds of things can be taught to people in handbooks and CDs. And the second is one of accuracy. And I, I want to use one example of, of, of this in a, in a very simple um, uh, publication. It's called An Iraq Culture Smart Card, a Guide for Communication and Cultural Awareness. And I wish I had one, but I don't, um, with me. It's a 16-panel folding card that, um, that, that soldiers and Marines can carry around with them and it's been in production since 2003 and revised and reissued um, by, by various branches of the military. And it has, um, it describes some of the issues, uh, some of the pillars of, it describes the five pillars of Islam on one panel. It has some Arabic words on other panels. And, and in, in general, it sort of tries to, to tell people something about what um, Iraqis, who Iraqis are and what they believe, etc. But one of the panels contains a section that is called Iraqi Clothes and Gestures. And this section contains images of three men wearing headscarves, uh, the uh, kfiya, the shmag, or the hatta. You all know what I mean by headscarves. Um, one is white, one is black and white, and one is red and white. And the smart card tells the reader that the white male headdress signifies the wearer and I'm going to quote here, quote, has not made the Hajj or pilgrimage to Mecca. The black and white is from a country with presidential rule, for example, Libya or Egypt, and has made the Hajj. And the red checkered is from a country with a monarch, for example, Saudi Arabia or Jordan, and has made the Hajj, end quote. And this information continues to be reprinted. It's in all of the new, really, revised editions as well. Now, for those of you that don't know this, this information is incredibly incorrect. And um, the content of the material, then, I would suggest is of questionable value and has a very high potential for misinformation. But what these ways of communicating knowledge, albeit factually incorrect knowledge, is, is it, it says more about the US military and its conception of culture than it does about the Iraqis or Arabs. Um, it, it, it essentially says that culture is something that human beings use and make and understand and, and act in in ways that sort of mirror a military hierarchy. And so in trying to understand why the, the, um, the, uh, they would want to transfer information this way to soldiers, I think you can see how it mirrors 
Um, I normally have a PowerPoint slide that shows all of these sorts of things. Um, similar ways of looking at dress and that dress has meaning in the U.S. military within a hierarchical system that you wear this color for this occasion, you have bars for, that mean for these occasions. But, but culture and human beings don't act that way, and, and I think that that, that is primarily, um, fundamentally a problem. And then pedagogically, the presentation of the material in this form fails to make clear to the troops, the ones who are meant to learn these factoids, why this information is important. Why does it matter if they see a man in a white headdress? Do, are they told that they should call this, this man a hajj, but nobody else a hajj? And they aren't. That, that doesn't exist there. If they see someone in a red and white uh, hatta or headscarf, are they immediately to think that that person is a foreign fighter from Saudi Arabia or Jordan? No, that conclusion isn't made either. And so these things are left very ambiguous and I, and I, and I think, um, and thus very dangerous. Um, given both the basicness and inaccuracy of such material and its pedagogical presentation, it is not surprising that the vast majority of the soldiers and Marines whom we interviewed in 2007 assessed the formal cultural training they were provided with, provided with as not useful. And they said it wasn't useful because culture was described as a fixed reaction or behavior, oftentimes a list of do's and don'ts which can be obeyed like orders rather than a contextual understanding. Um, only five of the 42 people that we, we did very long in-depth interviews with actually thought that the cultural material was useful. I have a bunch of quotes from them that I will skip in the interest of time. Um, but I think the generally negative assessment of this cultural training reflects that the knowledge about Iraq and Iraqis that are passed on by the U.S. military establishments to its troops is largely seen as insufficient and not useful by the very people that are supposed to be using this information. And in our research, we asked them what they actually, where they did actually get the, the kind of information that they found useful, and they said they got it through other troops and through translators. Um, so thus, instead of the U.S. military being the source for understanding the country and the people of Iraq, almost all of our interviewees reported that they gained the most useful knowledge about Iraqis, both for what they define as mission effectiveness and for interacting with Iraqis, once in Iraq, and from other military personnel, from civilian Iraqis and translators, and from knowledge they gained prior to going to Iraq. And so in a sense, the U.S. military has lost control over what it is trying to communicate to, to, to soldiers and Marines about this place where they're going. But the cultural training consists of, of more uh, than the behavioral do's and don'ts and who wears what. And the other, some of the other things that are communicated are much more problematic for the U.S. military and governmental roles there. So for example, the Army First Division Soldier's Handbook to Iraq, first published in late 2003, declared in a section called, quote, Arab worldview, end quote, that democracy would not work because the Arab worldview is one that contrasts with wish with reality. The handbook proclaims that Iraqis, quote, desire for modernity is contradicted by a desire for tradition, especially Islamic tradition, since Islam is the one area free of Western identification and influence. Desiring democracy and modernization immediately is a good example of what a Westerner might view as an Arab's wish versus reality, unquote. So positing this mindset as fundamental to Arab and Iraqi culture suggests that Iraqis are incapable of democracy, one, because they all hold this one view of the world that is incompatible with modernity and democratic behavior. As a cultural behavior based in a national Iraqi and or ethnic Arab character, 
This view suggests that all 27 million Iraqis, no matter their education, economic status, age, identity, experiences, or location in the country, are the same, and in some ways incapable of being otherwise or of ever changing. More importantly, perhaps, this view of Iraqis is counterproductive to the U.S. mission because with this assertion, the handbook undermines one of the, one of the stated reasons why the U.S. invaded Iraq in the first place, to overthrow Saddam Hussein and bring democratic rule to the country. Well, it, the handbook declares that they're incapable of really um, being democratic. So while the U.S. administration sent Iraqis to the polls in January 2005 to vote for the 275-member Transitional Iraqi Assembly, the handbook asserted that they were essentially incapable of doing that. So I, I think on some fundamental level, there's a real problem, because how are U.S. servicemen and women, as well as Iraqis, supposed to reconcile these contradictory messages that they are being um, sort of given in various ways? The latest installment of, of uh, the research I've been working on has been to interview Iraqis about their experiences with American servicemen and women in the area of culture. And we're still analyzing this material, but I'll make a few very general conclusions here. Um, first, most Iraqis complain that, about the ways that Americans have treated them as civilians, both in terms of danger and disrespect. Most, I think almost everyone that we talked to um, has had a direct relative who was unintentionally killed or injured or shot at by American troops while in their cars driving down the street or standing on their roofs or in their gardens or some other way where they were just trying to live their lives. The Iraqis we interviewed found that um, some American servicemen and women are respectful and others are not. And they cite things such as using dogs for searches, male soldiers physically touching women, and stealing things during searches as the main violations that they think could be adjusted in a cultural way. However, when we directly asked our Iraqi interviewees whether they thought culture was relevant to the role of the U.S. military in Iraq, most of them replied that it was not. More important to them was ending the military occupation, improving the, the, um, the living situation in Iraq, and of really the soldiers and, and, and Marines addressing issues of general respect, not just in cultural terms, but in, in terms of respecting Iraqis as a country, respecting, uh, respecting Iraq as a country, and respecting people's capabilities. Um, a larger conclusion of this research has been, for me, centered on the issue of the role of the US military in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, not as military troops and fighters alone, but as state builders, because in many ways they've been asked to do a job that they have not been trained for, um, and, 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 and thus in, in some ways I think they're really set up to fail, and, um, and I know that that is, is not where they, what they want to do. Um, I would think, one of my conclusions, um, that knowing culture is not going to be the answer to this. Um, despite the fact that you know, culture is now a large um, component of the, of the counterinsurgency sort of doctrine as well. Do I have a few more minutes? You're tough. Okay. The, the second part of my research that I, that I want to talk about is sort of um, notions and understandings of nationalism and state building in Iraq. And this is a... Um, a bit, this is based entirely on the interviews we did with the, with the U.S. Uh, servicemen and women. And we take on the idea of, the, of how um, U.S. servicemen and women and, U, and the U.S. government and the U.S. military perceive um, nationalism and the ideas of uh, state, uh, nation, and patriotism. 
So first we examine the conceptions of, of nationalism and patriotism that Americans, primarily servicemen and women, express. And they express that their sense of, 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 of relationship to their country is one based on patriotic feelings, a sense of duty, and a sense of responsibility towards their fellow citizens and structures of government. And then as we interviewed the, the, the soldiers and Marines, it, it became very clear that this sense of nationalism that they have about a sense of duty and a sense of responsibility towards their, their fellow citizens and these very sort of strong patriotic feelings is applied um, directly to Iraqis. And the US service men, men and women feel that Iraqis um, are, are, should be should be relating to their state in the same ways, and thus the, they're judged as nationalistic or patriotic or not patriotic if, um, if they don't react to the, to the Iraqi state in the same way that Americans expect them to. So the views expressed by many of the interviewees indicate the assumption that Iraqis um, would maintain this sense of, of, of greater national loyalty to the state of Iraq despite the destruction of the state. One Army second lieutenant deployed to Iraq at the beginning of the war from March 2003 to April 2004 framed his judgments in terms that characterized Iraqis as lacking a sense of selfless service and duty and responsibility and initiative. He said, quote, I think it's unfortunate that it took so long to find Iraqi soldiers and Iraqi policemen that were willing to lay down their lives on, that were willing to lay their lives on the line to improve the country. You know, when we first got there, po the police were running like cowards. We'll stay here, they said. We'll just smoke and eat and drink shay, and that's it. We're not taking any part in improving our country. So the most frust frustrating part to me was that the Iraqis weren't stepping up faster, end quote. So this assumed nature of how Iraqis should behave and think towards their country missed um, a couple of facts, I think. One, that Iraqis knew that they weren't in charge of anything in this new sort of situation, and therefore had very little that they could actually do. And two, the very nature of the Iraqi state as it had been before 2003 and then what they were faced with after 2003. So post-2003, the Iraqi population had few resources to turn to, very few jobs, little security, and limited services. Due to the assumptions of the service, the, that the servicemen and women made about Iraqis, they thought that Iraqis should have the same reciprocal and participatory relationship with the state and the citizens that Americans have. And, and such, they showed a sort of a great ignorance of the more author authoritarian, oppressive, and socialist role that the Iraqi state had played for the last 30 years in the lives of the citizens in a very um, strong cradle-to-grave relationship that the state had had in, in the lives of, their, of Iraqis. Thus, despite the absence of an Iraqi state functioning as a state, and in this larger context of war, acute upheaval, and uncertainty, the US soldiers and Marines that we interviewed all expected Iraqis to feel and act as if the state was still a, a major part of their lives and that the Iraqis should be patriotic to it, um, almost entirely out of inherent emotion and sentiment as opposed to the, the, the state as a service provider and as representative. Concurrent with the military's efforts to rebuild the country, to train the Iraqi military and police forces, so, so the military is involved in this action of state building and really trying to get Iraqis to be part of this. At the same time, US governmental policies in Iraq um, began at, at times both actively and passively contributing to the weakening of the Iraqi state. 
and the decline of an inclusive sense of Iraqi national identification by empowering sectarian affiliations, by creating political roles for sectarian organizations, and supporting certain groups and communities while limiting the power of others. For example, some of these things include canceling the elections in 2003 and appointing sectarian representatives instead, among other high and low-level actions. So the resulting contradiction that was there between a U.S. military policy that is working towards rebuilding the state by training an Iraqi national army and and police forces on the one hand, and U.S. government policies, which are undermining and questioning at times the viability of an Iraqi state on the other hand, left Iraqis between competing notions of a national identity, the role of a state, and patriotic expression. So trying to understand the way nationalism and patriotism is expressed by U.S. military servicemen and women and how they transfer these notions onto Iraqis, and then also understanding how Iraqis conceive of national uh, pride and patriotism, I think by, by looking at these two things, we can create a fruitful conversation about how states are built and experienced by their citizens such a conversation, and then the development of policies built on that conversation can help build structures and state bodies that are meaningful to their citizens rather than impose definitions of how people should behave and feel on the one hand and then judge them negatively for it if they don't behave in those ways. Or, conversely, implement deeply contradictory policies between government actions and military policy, um, which result in an occupied population that operates in a number of different worlds. So in conclusion, um, understanding one of these prisms uh, through which the U.S. servicemen and women view, interpret, and understand Iraqi patriotism, and by extension through their interactions with higher officials, U.S. government policymakers, and civilians back home, all of these things have important implications for understanding the role of, um, of the U.S. military, of, of, uh, of citizens um, uh, of, of countries that are, that are uh, parts of civil wars, um, and between occupier and occupied in general, and in the case of post-2003 Iraq specifically. Thank you. We're going to be flexible here, um, and with uh, Dr. Moynihan's uh, already uh, approval, and hopefully Dr. Davis's as well. We'll come back to both, uh, to Dr. Davis, uh, because she has a, a bit more to share, and, and certainly uh, Dr. Moynihan. Uh, but the ambassador mentioned that uh, he's got uh, around 100 people coming here next week, and in between their coming here, he has to leave here and be three states away uh, this evening and get back tomorrow in order for that to take place. So to utilize his uh, presence here, he's graciously agreed to take questions for the next sort of 12 minutes, and then we'll segue uh, from there, and we'll, we'll meet both objectives uh, that way. The uh, questions that have been put... He's going to comment on Dr. Davis first, and then I'll ask uh, several of the questions that have been put to him. Well, uh, I just wanted to say that Dr. Davis' presentation illustrated some of the points which I wanted to make. Well, I did make the level of the lack of understanding of the situation in Iraq by our American friends when they went in. They just did not have a clue. As a result of that, decisions were made. They were in control during the first phase. They trying to create Iraq in their own image. 
they tried to put in state structures which did not quite fit the suit was the wrong size or the wrong shape. That created structural problems for us, include, including some of those in our constitution, which was written, in my view, personal view, too much in a hurry. The country was not yet ready for it. We needed more time to calm down, to reflect, to think of the future long term, and then go into uh, writing our constitution, which is, which is supposed to be the map for our future. A result, as a result of all that, all that, of course, with the, with, the, with the best intentions, and must not detract from the acclaim deserved by many excellent contributions by patriotic and hard-serving Americans who did understand there were many who understood from the outset that we were going not quite in the right direction. The, their numbers increased as we went on and later on became really quite, especially at the higher levels, uh, very, uh, uh, very dominant. Uh, with, the, with, 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 with General Petraeus coming to, into Iraq who had spent time in Mosul, new Iraqis. He called himself Moslawi, which means he's from Mosul, and got on very well with people there, really understood people, and then tried to apply counterinsurgency principles, which, which are based on ma making com communities work with you and making them feel secure. Now, acknowledging the great contributions by many American, both military and civilians, we have to say that initially uh, we were going in the wrong direction, resulting, based on lack of understanding, resulting in structural, you can call them flaws in the way Iraq has been reconstituted. And we will need time to work our way out of this. It's possible, we can see the way forward, but it will require extra effort and it is, I think, right to say that we have both sides, American and Iraqis, have lost a lot of lives a result of, as a result of this initial mismanagement. This is my comment. Thank you. Two, two questions uh, related to defense of military matters. Um, could you please de uh, deliberate on what the status of forces agreement consist of, uh, what are its components? Secondly, uh, will there be permanent U.S. bases in Iraq? I'll take the second one first. The short answer is no. This is, this is not the wish of the Iraqi people. It's not the wish of the American people. But I think it, is, it will be right that we will have ongoing and long-lasting relationship between our militaries which will, both sides will cooperate, and we need American military support and involvement in, in keeping our military and security forces up to date, well, well armed and, uh, and, and capable. So that's, that, that's the situation on the, um, on the permanent basis. We have no, no plans 
neither side has any plans for permanent American bases in Iraq. As for, far as the SOFA is concerned, well, it is effectively a, a, a plan or a, a, a way for military disengagement. The concept is very simple. Enable Iraqi security forces to take charge and to, um, to provide security internal security first and later external security for the country. This is a process which cannot be, uh, cannot be completed overnight. So as, uh, and we've been going at it for, uh, for some years now. Uh, the SOFA shows us the way of completing this process to the time when American forces do not need any longer to help us with our own security. And I think, as I said in my comments, we are on schedule. It is satisfactory to both parties. It is consistent with this administration's plans and consistent with the way we are going forward. Please. I think there's something about Kurdistan there. Yes. Here's one about how will the status of Kurdistan be resolved? Can Kurdistan actually be integrated into a unified Iraq, short of a degree of autonomy that makes it very nearly, quote, unquote, sovereign? What would be the role of the United States in resolving the Kurdistan question, if any? A uh, question about uh, Kurdistan, sorry. How will the uh, status of Kurdistan be resolved? Can Kurdistan actually be integrated into a unified Iraq, short of a degree of autonomy, that makes Kurdistan very nearly, quote unquote, sovereign. What should be the role of the United States, if any, in resolving this question? And the second one is from an Iraqi and from a US point of view, what are the key sticking points in what would be the final negotiation or the end of the SOFA agreement? Again, I will take the second one first because it seems to be easier. There are no sticking points. We are in full agreement and the negotiations were over, the SOFA was signed, so we are on course to complete it. As for Kurdistan, uh, Kurdistan is already integrated. There is no need to integrate Kurdistan into Iraq. Kurdistan is part of a united Iraq. We have a constitution. The constitution is our reference, and the constitution is based on a federal structure, just like the United States of America. The, Federal concept was approved by the opposition movement back in 1992. I attended that conference in Salahuddin in Kurdistan, where all uh, opposition parties then agreed, with very minor uh, number dissenting, that the future of Iraq should be uh, a, a, a federal uh, future. So this was actually implemented in the Constitution, there are clear uh, lines of authority for the federal government, and other authorities are left for the regions or the, re the federal regions. This is clear in the, in, in the Constitution. There are some fuzzy areas, there are some, um, uh, some areas which require to be clarified by detailed laws, which are to be resolved. But the principles are clear. The principle is a federal structure. It's a unified country with, with different regions in it. 
And I think the rest is a political question. It's not a, a question whether Kurdistan is in Iraq or not in Iraq, whether it's sovereign or not sovereign. That has been resolved, and that's very clear. And the, as I said, the Constitution is the reference. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. We'll let you uh, make your next uh, assignment there so Thank that you'll be on time and get back on time and uh, Godspeed. Thank you very much. We next have uh, Dr. Joseph Moynihan, who's the Vice President for the Electronic Systems of Northrop Grumman uh, Corporation for the Northeast region. He previously, immediately prior to that, was Vice President Northrop Grumman's Electronic Systems for all of the Arab world, uh, based in Abu Dhabi and, and with the offices in Algiers and Cairo uh, reporting to him. He's done graduate work at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, he has his PhD from St. Louis University's in International Studies. He's a colonel in the United States Air Force. Uh, he served in uh, national command positions with the AWACS uh, situation in Saudi Arabia. He's on the executive uh, board of the Seminar for National Security Personnel of the United States in Harvard. And we're friends. <laughs> John, as usual, you're overly generous. Uh, and at uh, 5.12 in the afternoon, I'll, I'll be brief. And, and thank you all for, uh, for staying and, uh, and paying me the, the courtesy to, to listen to a few words. Uh, I am an employee of Northrop Grumman. The words are mine and uh, not approved in any corporate hierarchy, simply because I didn't send any remarks in to be cleared, not because I think Northrop might disagree with something that I have to say. Um, let's go back for a moment to the Nixon years. You know, just take a minute or two, um, and you'll remember that, uh, that a democratically controlled Congress, a Congress that uh, then Vice President Agnew referred to sometimes as nattering nabobs of negativism, wonderful turn of phrase, they passed the requirement to form an environmental protection agency. The president promptly vetoed that legislation, and then, over the president's veto, the Congress insisted upon an environmental protection agency being established. And then, they established it as a cabinet-level reporting agency, something the president, once again, had preferred not happen. So now think of yourself as the new administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. You have no staff. You have no budget. You have the contempt of your boss, the president. You have the, uh, uh, the, the great antagonism of the Congress, who is enjoying your very appointment as a way to further gouge at the president's ego and to let him know he's really not in charge of the agenda. Um, you have no plan, and you have responsibilities, and you're required to testify on the Hill on a regular basis, proclaiming to all who will listen your incompetence in such a task, because, of course, you have no hope of success in the near term. <laughs> Despite all of that, as we know, the EPA uh, did, did recover from those terrible early moments and went on to produce me very meaningful change in our environmental regulations. 
Well, when I think of that EPA administrator then, I think of whatever minister Iraq might choose uh, at this time in their history to establish the new agenda, to establish some of the, the thoughts and concepts that the ambassador presented as a way of, in terms of our panel, a newly sovereign Iraq, uh, a newly prosperous Iraq, uh, a newly safe Iraq. I'll take a moment to tell you the post-conflict record of mid-sized states is not wonderful. Uh, South Asia's record is, uh, is actually quite strong, but in the Arab states, much less so. I say that for as someone who has served as a United Nations peacekeeper in South Lebanon. I was immediately prior to Rich Higgins, who you may recall was executed by Hezbollah during his tour there. And as someone during the, the latter years of my military career, I had operational control of all the civil affairs forces, both active and reserve, of the United States Army. So that stabilization reconstruction mission, the issue of dealing in a post-conflict uh, environment is something that I've experienced firsthand, both as a practitioner and as a supervisor. So then when I suggest that the post-conflict record of Egypt remains poor, uh, with an insurgency still very much alive in much of the country, where, where poverty reigns even in the capital city, and yet half of the employees of Egypt have some form of a government paycheck to represent their income. Uh, the case of Lebanon was mentioned earlier today, where the, uh, the Prime Minister is unable to seat a cabinet, where large portions of the country are under control of, uh, well, I guess we really can't refer to Hezbollah as an insurgency anymore, but a, a portion of the Lebanese political fabric that is certainly not necessarily loyal to, uh, to the confessional system principles or to the authority of the Prime Minister. Um, some of my Northrop Grumman colleagues from Algeria are here. We know that post-conflict Algeria in some ways continues, that, uh, that yes, the human rights record has been subject to, uh, to critical review by the United States and others over the years, but an active insurgency remains in Algeria, or has, until very recently. And of course, the Algerian Revolution was some time ago. Um, the case of Yemen comes to mind, and I saw my friend, the ambassador from Yemen, earlier today here. Um, where low-level conflict and, and lower-level uh, violence continues today, despite the fact that reunification occurred in 92. Uh, the case of Palestine, where perhaps low-level conflict has uh, really existed since the 1950s. And, uh, and high-level conflict, a periodic interruption to, to daily violence. We have a, an exception in Kuwait, I think, in terms of their post-conflict record, their ability to return to, to normalcy, to prosperity, to peace, to clean up the streets. But we should remember that Kuwait did not experience three wars over a 30-year period, which is the history of Iraq in the near term. Let me repeat that. It might be significant. Three wars over 30 years. In each of those, many weapons dropped upon the heartland, many people die. The, uh, the estimate by the government of Iraq, at least published in the newspaper this morning, is that 85,000 Iraqi citizens died during the most recent trouble. Uh, I've heard estimates as low as 20 to 30,000 and as high as 250 to 300,000, but I would guess 85,000 is a proper number. That's an enormous loss 
of intellectual capital. If you combine that with the refugees, which are mostly in Jordan, but also in some other Arab places, and indeed some in Washington, D.C., uh, we know that intellectual capital in Iraq has been damaged and may recover over time, but perhaps not soon. Uh, political participation in Iraq seems to be uh, following the Lebanese confessional system, where people based upon family or tribe or religion or area of the country or Kurdish background are selected for, spe for specific positions of authority. Um, I guess I'm surprised that the Iraqis are following that model because it hasn't worked real well for Lebanon. Um, the, the sorts of uh, inter-office uh, uh, political infighting that occurs in such a system is legendary. And that will not return Iraq to prosperity or to peace or to security or to its rightful place among the, you know, the, the, the nations of the world. The wealth engine is discussed, but it's not yet in evidence. Uh, institution building is something that's still under discussion uh, rather than in place. I think we could honestly acknowledge, I'm sorry the ambassador is not here to perhaps disagree, but that the Iraqi ministries are largely dysfunctional today. Uh, what about external assistance? How, uh, how will the nations of the world come to Iraq at this time? Well, in, case, uh, in some cases, instead of debt relief, we're still talking about reparations from previous conflict. We should remember that, as the ambassador pointed out, Afghanistan makes Iraq perhaps a, a, a forgotten problem in some ways, and that during global economic doldrums. Um, security questions remain. I will say that as a Northrop Grumman employee, before we bid on contracts in Iraq, we begin to wonder if, uh, if like other American contractors, we're going to lose people in the execution of the contract. What will our security arrangements be? How much will that add to our cost? Um, Transparency within the business arrangements that, that the post-conflict Iraq might, uh, might engage in uh, is not yet evident, nor is the rule of law as far as contracts are concerned, nor is the review of such contracts or the appeal of such contracts a legal practice yet within the government of Iraq. Large companies, American or other, will be cautious in such an environment before they step up. Um, I would mention that as a longtime resident of the Gulf, it was usually the case if you wanted to find a dermatologist or you wanted to find uh, somebody in the higher order technical skills within your city, it would most likely be an Iraqi, an expatriate Iraqi. Uh, gradually now replaced, I think, by South Asia uh, as the, uh, the systems of education in Pakistan and India are producing more currently capable technocrats than the government of Iraq did for so long. Uh, because 30 years of war interrupted that educational system. And how to return to that, how to return to that educational engine that was discussed earlier today um, without the return of the, of the refugees, without the foreign investment from abroad. All this to say, let's talk about strategic planning for a few minutes because from the, in the business model, strategic planning seems to be a crying requirement for the new government of Iraq. 
What is their vision? What does Iraq want itself to look like in 2015, in 2020, in 2030? How have they established it? How is that consensus, that Arab consultative process, to produce a new consensus on the vision of a future Iraq? Where is that taking place? How is that process unfolding? If it is occurring at all, I'm not aware of its, uh, of its mechanics. Will it continue with a confessional concept, or will it try to become something of a meritocracy? How will institution building progress? Will ministries have the, have the authority to execute their programs, or will that be, as it is in elsewhere in the Arab world, relegated to a Majli structure, relegated to a tribal leader? Uh, should that be the case, uh, Iraq will suffer. Its growth will suffer. Its return to prosperity will suffer. What is the participatory methodology? What are the processes in order? Who's going to, in fact, engage in that strategic planning, create that vision? And then how are they going to identify the gaps between the existing reality, the vision that they've created together, and the agenda to, to in fact, address in a meaningful, technocratic, administrative order, address those gaps, address the progress that needs to occur to fulfill the vision, either that they have consensually created or, as the ambassador stated earlier on this panel. Uh, I would just mention that the dimensions of such a strategic vision will include certainly economic, social, security, diplomatic, and other essentials. Uh, indeed, every ministry should have such a strategic plan. It should be thought through. It should be discussed at the national level. It should be, in some sense, agreed. And then the process, just like the new EPA administrator, developed in order to meet the gaps that exist in every instance. Uh, I would state that the basic essentials of such a vision Include security and appealable order, not simply order, but order that is appealable through some process of jurisprudence to introduce the concept of review and fairness. Uh, transaction transparency. If, uh, if in fact the corporations of the world are being going to be invited to Iraq um, next month, they're going to leave, and they will not they will not agree to do business there without transaction transparency, and without some contractual rules, which ensure that, uh, that once a contract is signed, it doesn't simply become, as it does in some parts of the world, a way to extract money from the relative corporation. Um, how will education and fundamental services, how will medical services be restructured? How will, how will that occur? How will they serve the new Iraqis? How will they do so in a way that persuades the refugees it's time to come home. Uh, what is that agenda? I think at the moment, even the vision is not yet clear. So I'll, I'll be quiet at this point. Uh, I thank you for listening. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always, to, uh, uh, to, to visit with, uh, with my friends and partners at the National Council and with all of you here today. Thank you. And, and the few minutes that we have questions, most of them are for uh, Dr. Davis, because she spoke earlier. 
but one perhaps to two of you, both of you, to comment differently. You mentioned the refugees and the humanitarian aspects and the killed in action, et cetera. Uh, just focusing on the refugees internal as well as external, the figures I've seen most often, uh, something like 1.7 uh, million refugees internally, uh, uh, 2.3 uh, million refugees externally, the bulk of those in, in, in Syria, large numbers in Jordan. If we take the total of 4 million refugees, people displaced uh, since uh, March 19, 2003, and, and go with the Iraqi population at the time of the invasion of 2003 of 24 million, that's one-sixth of uh, Iraq's uh, population. Now, to freeze that for a minute and put it in American equivalencies, America has 303 million people. That would mean that 50 million, one-sixth, 50 million Americans would be displaced, half inside the United States, homeless without uh, their belongings, and the other half perhaps in Mexico or Canada. It's kind of, of difficult, if not impossible, to get one's mind around that in terms of the humanitarian logistical return operation where many of their homes have already been taken by someone else in their absence. Could you comment? Um, I, I actually uh, coordinated with my student Omar Shakir a, a project this uh, summer in Syria where we brought um, medical professionals in the United States from the United States to train uh, Syrian healthcare providers, particularly in mental health, um, around issues regarding displacement and trauma, etc. And so we spent five weeks there um, working with uh, people who were providing services to the one million plus uh, Iraqis um, in Syria. And I got very firsthand a, a lot of um, experiences with these refugee populations and the displacement and what it means to them and how they feel um, as Iraqis. But I think I have kind of two answers, well, one answer um, to, the, to the same problem. I mean, they have to go back to Iraq. They have to go back to Iraq so that Iraq can rebuild, because if they're not there, then Iraq cannot rebuild. And I think they have to go, they have to leave Syria and Jordan because neither of those countries can, can manage this incredibly large um, population that exists in them. I mean, because Syria provides them with access to health care and education, as does Jordan um, in, 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 in Syria, I think, does it in a, in a, in a, in a better way than Jordan does. But, um, but I think you know, I mean, this is not a. This is not. This is a temporary problem that that people need to work very hard to find a solution to. Okay, Dr. Monahan. I would just add the thought of the tyranny of time and the tyranny of distance. If, in fact, we're talking about refugees in Syria and Jordan, who have been there a short period of time, uh, yes, they will return, and yes, hopefully there will be a system within the government of Iraq to return them to employment to return their property, to return their wealth, uh, if in fact it can be located. Uh, but for long refugees who have, who have left Iraq for longer periods of time and have traveled further away, uh, the likelihood of their return is, is still, uh, uh, I think, a question. Uh, and yes, even if it's one-sixth of the population, there's a bit of a brain drain about it. It was, it was the people who had the means to leave who had the international contacts, who had the resources that, uh, that became refugees. So it's not a, perhaps a, a median cut within the population. It's probably from their, 
their technologically proficient uh, groups and classes. Thank you both. Um, Dr. Davis, you had several questions, and I'll, I'll leave to you how you bundled them together, if you can take five minutes to uh, chip away at the ones that you find most relevant. Sure. I'm not as good as doing that as you are, so I may just go question, question. Um, so one question is, why didn't the U.S. military get better material advice and expertise, and then what groups of scholars um, should they have sought advice from? And I think this goes to the, the sort of fundamental issue of the invasion and occupation of Iraq because the military had a specific purpose and was tasked with a specific goal, which was to overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein and to sort of secure the country. And, and that was it. And now that six years later, we're in a situation where they still have achieved that and they have not been either tasked or trained or given necessarily the, the resources to do these other things. So I'm not sure that they necessarily needed better material advice or expertise other than what they had. Um, if they're not supposed to be state building. But now the US government has tasked them with state building, and that's a whole other issue. So now that they have to do that, um, where, where, would they have, where would they go for advice? Um, there are lots of resources out there. I mean, one of the issues with Iraq is that since 1990, scholars and others who do these kinds of studies have not been able to go there. So we know political information about Iraq since 1990. We know. And, and historians work on the subject, but sociologists, anthropologists, humanitarian workers, many of these people have not ever had access to Iraq since 1990, and so we know very little about the social, cultural sort of um, stuff that would, might be useful for these kinds of things. That said, I, I don't think it's terribly complex. There's lots of people that have written about this. I mean, some of the cultural training material that is, that is produced is, is so racist and so wrong that I, it would not take someone with a lot of knowledge to actually do it. You don't necessarily, to, to, to make it better, you don't necessarily need sort of someone particularly um, well-trained. But this um, gets at a, at a larger issue, which is, I think, I also kind of tried to address, um, and it gets at one of the other questions, which is, given the critical conclusions of your research, I'm curious if you have recommendations for training the one million military members for combat deployment in a hostile foreign country, and that is, I think a lot of this is about how the U.S. military treats its own servicemen and women and the ways that they try to train them. I mean, I really actually think they think that they are not very intelligent, and they think that culture is something that can be learned. Like, culture is just like how you, you know, take apart a gun and how you put a gun back together, or it's like the rules of engagement where you just go step one, step two, step three. And I think the problem, in my experience, is is with the way the military conceives of culture and then tries to transfer it to its, its, its people. And if you thought of culture in a different way and you trained them in a different way to think about human beings that, that wasn't in this kind of hierarchy and structure, then, and if you taught them more concepts and you, ta and you tapped into how they actually learn their own cultures, because they all do learn their own cultures. We all do learn our own cultures. We are all proficient in our, our cultures, and we're proficient in more than one culture, because we know how to talk to um, different kinds of people in different ways. And so if you tap into the knowledge that they already have, I think you could really build more on this. 
Dr. Moynihan would like to add something, I think, yes. to this. I would. His background, I didn't mention, with the Special Operations Command as well is, yeah, is applicable Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at all these uh, midshipmen in the room and, and the other officers, and, and I'm aware that I was privileged to, to sit with uh, two admirals during most of the day. Uh, and even in my own role, I'm quite familiar with military training regimens. Uh, it is true that, uh, that the military does not excel in teaching culture, in teaching languages, in training people to uh, become part of a post-conflict reconstruction effort that some characterize as nation building or nation restoration. Uh, I think it's also recognized, particularly linguistically, where a great number of new programs are now available to, uh, to, to the military. Uh, and they're encouraged to, to gain those languages, even SEALs. You know, it's hard, for, hard to imagine SEALs and, SEALs and Rangers in, in language school. Um, but in order to do a good job of that, I think military leadership well understands that you're really going to have to segregate your forces, as they do special forces groups, to focus on a specific area of the world for their entire career where, in fact, immersion training and, and such occurs over a period of time where not simply the language or some racist cartoon, uh, you know, substitutes for, for cultural training, but the real effort and the investment is made. To do so, of course, you have to give up on other investments. You're not going to teach someone how to, how to fly aircraft, um, how to stay at the helm of submarines, uh, how, to, how to perhaps uh, lead a company or, or a battalion of armored forces while they're spending all of this immersion training in other countries. There's a trade-off there. And yes, uh, post-conflict reconstruction and nation building is not the primary mission of the armed forces that you pay for and, and who protect you as citizens. It's to fight and win our country's wars. Uh, so we're not as good at it. Uh, and indeed, uh, leaving Iraq just for a quick second, it might be a flaw in the McChrystal strategy uh, from Joe Moynihan's standpoint because the seeming counterinsurgency strategy he's developing for Afghanistan will require those sorts of skills to succeed, and that might be just a reach too far, a reach too high for our very professional, very competent uniform.